You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of Time Machine Baseball. My name is ancient and futuristic Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get mm, temporally elusive. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Welcome to Time Machine Baseball. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Rangers won the World Series, yada, yada, yada. Congrats to all the Rangers not named Araldus Chapman. Boo. Um, but as we head off into the deep dark of the offseason today, uh, Sam and I are trying something a little different here on Baltimoreans. That is right. We are going to get into a time machine. We're going to travel back in time to a random baseball game in the Orioles' past. We are... Um, going to watch a game that occurred during the years that Alan and I have been alive, which, uh, don't worry, gives us quite a range. And the idea behind this little series is we're, we're going to watch these games with you here on the podcast and see uh, where the game takes us in terms of memory and emotion and... Uh, I was going to say analysis, but I'm not sure how much analysis <laughs> there will really be. <laughs> You know who you're listening Why to. Why do this, you ask? Well, a few reasons. Um, as you well know, we are in the era of peak binge watching. So we might be down like maybe just a smidge from the heights of the pandemic, but there are countless television shows and movies algorithmically designed to be comfort food uh, and a whole constellation of podcasts and conversations dedicated to recapping those shows. So without intending to denigrate this as a, as a global phenomenon, we think that there is something worth unpacking in the desire to just rewatch or recap when we all know exactly how the game is going to end. And on another level, a project like this is asking an interesting question about the nature of our allegiance to baseball teams, essentially corporate entities to whom we offer loyalty from a certain angle Sports teams are brands, like any other. At best, they don't know we exist. And at worst, they are cynically extracting money from us in exchange for a sense of belonging. By reducing <laughs> the offering to its most nakedly dubious essence, the rewatch allows a space for deep consideration of the actual import of these forms of entertainment in our lives. And finally, and obviously most importantly here on Baltimore Ons, you know as well as we, baseball is a direct line for us to different eras in our lives. The Orioles have been a part of our lives when we went to middle school, when we went to high school. They were there when we got our first jobs. They were really there for me personally in my early 20s, etc., etc., etc. And this means that each Orioles game in Time Machine Baseball will also be taking us back to a very specific moment in our own lives, and probably in yours as well. We assume most Baltimore listeners are you know, demographically fairly similar to us. So today, join us in the time machine as we head back to 1996. Specifically, August the 26th, 1996. The Orioles are at home against the Oakland Athletics. Macarena, the Bayside Boys mix version, tops the charts. And I guess, Sam, here we go. Look out. Major League Baseball tonight, live from Oriole Clark Park at Camden Yards. It's the Orioles and the Oakland Athletics. 
Oh my goodness, Smith. Really, Man, those graphics. Really takes me back to see that HTS logo. Yeah. <laughs> Mel Proctor on the call. My goodness. And there is Mike Flanagan, RIP. He's joined by, it appears to be Mike Flanagan. Yeah. Listen, uh, you know, do you remember the thing earlier this year about how the, you know, when there was all this stuff about Kevin Brown and um, how he was maybe suspended for maybe having the gall to, like, utter a, a discouraging word in passing? Um, sure, sure. And then there was there was all this commentary about the the cheapness of the Angelos regime, including the fact that apparently the people who work for Masson have to buy their own polo shirts to be on TV, their own right. Orioles polo shirts. And it's very uh, nice to be reminded as we watch this that the cheesy polo shirts have been such a consistent part of <laughs> Orioles home broadcasts. Like it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a TV broadcast without a cheesy polo. <laughs> Twenty-five years of Southwest Airlines, Smith, which means that now, that's almost forty-five years of <laughs> Southwest Airlines. Yeah, that's kind of amazing. Um, man. I, you know, my initial reaction to this, oh man, the yellow pages, Jesus, <laughs> uh, is, is that, that one cuts like, deep. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm just interested in the simplicity of the broadcast um, and how familiar it feels. Yeah. Like, I guess, like, I still haven't really adjusted to the glitz and glam of the um, actual broadcast that we get now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and it's also interesting how... Scott Brocious, Jason Giambi. Man. Whoa. Yeah, uh, in your starting lineup... Oh, look, he's playing shortstop for the Angels. Oh, for the A's. Excuse me. Yeah, Mike Bordick. Uh, Mike Bordick. Interesting little little piece of trivia for you, Smith, uh, that I came across um, thinking about this game. So this is a 19... This is, game is taking place, as we said, August 26th of 1996. Do you know what happened on July 16th of 1996? So a little bit more than a month before the game we are now looking at. I do not. On July 16th of 1996, Cal Ripken moved to third base after 2,216 consecutive games at shortstop and said, and I quote, Davey seems pretty adamant about it. That's a reference to Davey Johnson, the Orioles manager. (laughs) I was told it was a temporary situation. It's something they're really set on doing. Wow. So you, I mean, well, he does seem to be back at shortstop here in August. Yes. So uh, I had to uh, go back and be reminded of this, but um, I guess at the in 1996 they were they thought they would give Manny Alexander a try at shortstop. That obviously was a short-lived experiment. Um, but uh, in the offseason after this year, that's when um, the Orioles brought Mike Bordick in. And apparently Cal Ripken called Mike Bordick personally to say it would be my honor to move to third base for you to come play shortstop in Baltimore. So sometime between July wow. and December when they signed Bordick, Ripken's... Um, 
terseness thawed a little bit. <laughs> Looks like uh, Mark McGuire is in the dugout, but not playing today for the A's. Uh, McGuire sitting with a case of the steroid shakes, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Although, interestingly, this is still a couple years before the... When was the, the Mark McGuire 70-home run season? Oh, no, not for a good bit. That would have been 98. So we are two years before okay. that. Although uh, we should so note that... currently juicing. Yeah. Uh, McGuire's final stat line in 1996... Ooh, Rocky Coppinger. The old cop! Do not remember anything about Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> um... So, Sam, where are you as Tony Batista w- leads off? Like, where, where is this, this lineup with these Orioles? Where is it putting you? Well, um, th- so, this, so this is late August of 1996. So this is, if memory serves, about a week before the beginning of what would have been ninth grade for me. Um, and that means that I was about to start going to what... Oh, and Batista rips a home run <laughs> to lead off the game. Oh, boy. Coppinger gives up the leadoff homer. You know, I, I don't remember much about Rocky Coppinger, but I could Could have really used Mount Baltimore there. <laughs> yeah. Just Is sneaking it over the 333 sign. 333. By the way, I do have to say before we continue, Mark McGuire's final stat line in 1996, he hit 312, um, got on base at a 467 clip, slugged 730, and hit 52 home runs. So, you know. Yeah. So, uh, the, the, uh, the, the pills or the, the, the syringes were working even back then. Um, Even back then, but yeah, Smith, I was uh, I was about to go to the ninth grade center, um, which was a, a little quirk of my high school system, where um, instead of having the ninth graders at the actual high school, we were siloed off in a separate building down the road. Um, hmm. And I played on the JV baseball team that year, and it was always very embarrassing because we would like show up to the baseball practices with the rest of the kids at the high school on like a separate bus. <laughs> and it, it always just felt like, Oh look, the children are here. <laughs> what about you? Well, you know, I, I'm realizing that one of the things that, um, Hey, look, Rocky Coppinger got the, somebody out. <laughs> hey, there you go. One of the things that watching a game on the TV is doing for me is remembering how rarely I watched baseball on TV. Mm. I mean, I grew up in a house with no television. Mm-hmm. Um, so this would have been for me between seventh and eighth grade, maybe. Okay. That's what we decided. Okay. Um, and I'm still well logged in rural Nelson County with no uh, ability to. to consume the televised version of this game. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what's interesting in seeing these names is thinking about some combination of radio listen and... Um, right, right. Like, like, how would you actually have experienced this game back then? Yeah. And mostly box scores, in all probability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Um, although if it's a Sunday get out of town game, I might have listened to it on the radio. That is that's fascinating. That's I have to say that's a really fascinating difference between our experiences because this period of Orioles history is right in the sweet spot of the part of my life when like my main pastime honestly was trying to figure out how to imitate the batting stances and pitching windups <laughs> right. of every single player on the Orioles and that was so informed by sitting and watching these home team sports broadcasts all night long um, huh. so like I don't know I mean especially watching this I'm just if just the grain of the of the TV broadcast and you know the sound of Mel Proctor's voice it's just bringing me back so much to sitting in the TV room in my house holding a bat in my hand like working on perfecting the batting stance as I'm watching yeah for me um Jambi just got absolutely made foolish by Coppinger that's Love because Rocky Coppinger is obviously a more legendary baseball player than <laughs> Jason Giambi <laughs> That's how statistics work. That's what. That's um, clearly what happened over the course of history. The equivalent for me is actually in my uncle's house, who lived in um, Bethesda. Okay. And I would go up there, and when when I watched Orioles games, it was probably there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, speaking of batting but, stances, yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't really fall in love with, or I didn't have a, like a, a real like lived experience of. The television version of this. This is this is interesting to see. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just have to say, speaking of batting stances, uh, Geronimo Baroa is batting right now, and I don't know if that name means anything to anybody who's listening to this, but he just Not had me. <laughs> this this very classic '90s batting stance that you don't see anymore, where his his like. A, his baseball pants are, like, spray-painted on. This is well before the era where the baseball <laughs> pants started to get uh, baggy. And he has this big, wide-open stance, and he's, Gary like... Gary Sheffield. Yes, just, like, pumping his, like, forearms back and forth, getting ready for the pitch. And he just uh, looked silly on another Rocky Coppinger pitch, so... Do up Alomar Anderson. Wow. Yeah. So this is August of 96. Is this like right before Alomar spits on the dude? No, I don't think that happened until 97 or 98. I'm going to look okay, at Okay, so this uh, is still this is still the Orioles in their um in their pomp on the way up. Yes, and if if memory serves, um this was, I think, I'll look this up, but I, I've, memory serves, this was the year they brought Alomar in, um, which was a huge moment for the Orioles. Yeah, this was the first of three seasons that Alomar would play for the Orioles, and he had a monster year. Hit 328, yeah. 411 on, on base percentage, 22 home runs, 17 stolen bases, 94 RBI. And looks at an opening ball. Um, yeah, the, the Alomar signing, this was the year that they brought in not just Alomar, but they also brought in, um, wow, look how far Alomar leans over in his batting stance. He's yeah. like v It's also interesting how much a lot of these guys are like choking up a little bit. Yeah. Like they're, they're. 
Wow, that I, is... I'm used to sort of some more free swinging. Yeah, it just leans out. Oh, and laces the ball to center field. Caught. He just, I, I had forgotten how much, how far bent over at the waist he was. That's probably one of the reasons he drew so many walks. Like, what a teeny little strike zone. Yeah. But yes, yeah, Smith, uh, let me verify. Brady. Also juicing. Oh, yeah. This is, <laughs> this is the all juice team. I mean, we have. Yeah, A's versus Orioles is a lot of known steroid abusers yes and don't forget smith we are watching uh brady anderson during the infamous 50 home run season um yeah where he went from you know, Bonilla. occasionally hitting a home run to becoming one of the most prodigious power hitters in all of baseball yeah right <laughs> and so good looking oh yeah I, mean, I was just recently reminded of the fact that oh my god he, he this shirt Cannot contain his biceps. <laughs> nope. Um, he he had a he had a cameo on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Really? <laughs> yeah. Probably right around here because this is when he's his most famous. The face can barely contain the sideburns. Also. Yeah, he really does look like a um, like a statue, like a Greek statue. He's like he, he's like tiny little legs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoop. And he just got hit just in got the toe. Um, Unscathed, I would say. So do you remember this, Smith? This was the year that they, that they brought in Davey Johnson to manage the team. And it was a really big moment because the, the Orioles for a while... That's actually more of a hit than I thought. ...had had, you know, a lot of potential. They had sort of, like, been a, a contending team for a, a bunch of years in the 90s with Johnny Oates. But um, and they had had Palmero for a couple years at this point, and uh, Palmero, speak of the devil, stepping into the box right now, um, and uh, Hoyles had been, excuse me, uh, playing really well for them, and they had Musina at this time, and all these things. But well, a balk against Wasden. Hmm. My goodness! I'll tell you what, man, that mustache is fantastic. The Palmero mustache. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I do love. Uh, they just called a balk against Wasden, and you saw him kind of nod, like, "Yeah, I know, I know, I balked." <laughs> um, I'm not seeing it on the replay, though. Nope. Wow, this of course uh, don't is, really know what a balk is. A balk is it's when you like if you come set with a runner on base, and you move your Go hands. anywhere other than towards home. Yeah, yeah. Um, but balking used to be, I mean, it used to be much, there were a lot of balks this year with the new pace of play regulations because there were a lot of, uh, took the mm -hmm. pitchers a little bit while to get used to it. But back then, it was hard to balk. Um, man, speaking of stances, that Palmero swing is still one of the sweetest of all time. I know it was artificially enhanced, but Jesus Christ. The way he would just kind of like throw his hands Flick. through the zone, it was just beautiful. Anyway, uh, if you remember Smith, I mean, this was a big moment, um, bringing in Davey Johnson to be the manager. This was like the move that was meant the to signal, this is now a win-now team. And the other thing that this was bringing back for me is we're watching an Orioles team that would go on to win 88 games, and this 
is the season that the Orioles made it to the American League Championship Series and had it taken from them by the cruel hands of one Jeffrey Mayer. Oh, yeah. Wow. It's very tempting for me in my narrative That's interesting. of the Orioles to make 97 the Mayer season because 90, it was after 97 that they fired Davey Johnson and everything went into tailspin mode, but it was actually 96. Right, because that was... It was 97 where they just were bad. No, 97 was the wire-to-wire year. Um, That was the year they were... I think they won 97 games. And 98 is when the spit happens. Yes, 98 is when it... Okay. 98 is when we begin uh, the 14 consecutive losing seasons. Yeah. God. The other thing that's cra- the thing that's crazy to me about watching Palmero is obviously he was juicing just like all these other guys. But when you look at Palmero, he doesn't he looks like a guy who like I don't know, like runs a stereo store or something. He d- he doesn't yeah. look like a big like jacked up steroid head. He never had that that yeah. look where like, you know, his deltoids were like massive well that's or... the thing about steroids right like for some people it could be just to, to to increase to decrease their recovery time or like help get over an injury or yeah. there are so many things it wasn't all just bulk look at that eye good on eye, good eye. it is easy to forget how good he was no I, I mean I think the, well, I guess this team... I should say, quote-unquote, good, he was. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I think I think that you have to... Ju- well, we, we, we've had this conversation many times over Baltimore runs, but I think you have to judge this team against the people they were playing against, yeah. right? You know, Giambi and Maguire are in the other dugout, um, and I think he was good, given yeah. the context of the time. yeah. And I do have to say... Now, we don't have to worry too much about where he goes in the Hall of Fame or what have you, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, two things about what just happened. Palmero just, you know, he'd worked the count to, I think it was three and one. There was like a little breaking ball in the outside corner, and he just reached out and dropped the bat head on it and drove it into the left center field gap. Didn't try to pull it. Like, that's the Anderson thing that was always right so... Away too so good about him he just ne- he just never wow 116th rbi in august <laughs> and hey look and bobby bonilla with a rally killing double play <laughs> that's that the least surprising familiar. thing i've ever seen yeah but just that that ability of palmero to not try to do too much even though he could you know even though he could hit it out it it, it just never seemed like he was trying to Okay, that's the end of our first inning of, of Time Machine Baseball. Should we pause for a moment? Sure. Uh, what do you think? How are you feeling? Well, I, I, I'm interested in um, kind of like what was, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, first of all, that my knowledge of this Orioles team is more um, fluid than I thought. Yeah, it's kind of like spongy. And I guess I just, yeah. I have a bunch of guys on this squad that continued to be in my life for another couple of years and 
where they are in an individual season doesn't seem to matter to me that much. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Uh, it's like those were the Rafael Palmero years. Those were the Cal Ripken years. Like I have no differentiation in my head between 95, 96, 97, or 98. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, it's more, um, you feel, it's more like an era than it is yeah. a particular team. It seems, I mean, just, just based on this one half, mm-hmm. one inning and, um, where, where it's putting me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing that an interesting reaction is, yeah, like, at this moment in my life, um, I don't think I have anybody else around me who is particularly a baseball fan. Uh-huh. Or an Orioles fan, particularly. Okay. Um, so it really is like one of my few out lifelines to the outside of Nelson County world. And it's sort of like a, um, a secret lifeline. Hmm. Um, like I don't have anybody in my classes at my small hippy dippy mm-hmm. private school who is interested in the baseball particularly. Yeah. Um, I don't play it. Uh-huh. My friends and I play soccer when we play sports. Uh-huh. Um, but the Orioles and the Orioles box score every day is like a link to, for me, the North and the big city and like huh. outside of Nelson. Hmm. Oh, that's uh, so that's interesting. that's back pretty strongly. That's so interesting. Because I have to say, for me, it's... It was so much more immediate because Baltimore was just 45 minutes up the road. I knew that we were going to go because of my dad to at least 10 or 11 games over the course of every summer. And I, at that time, genuinely thought that I had a decent shot at becoming a professional baseball player. (laughs) And so for me, like the dawn of every season was... Like the reason I was always trying to imitate windups and batting stances is because every year I would sort of tell myself like, okay, if you can, if you can get Rafael Palmero's swing down, if you can get Arthur Rhodes's rotation down, if you can uh, a windup down rather, if you can get Alan Mills's uh, windup down, then <clears throat> this will be another year where you get continue building the skills that are going to result in you doing this. <laughs> professionally (laughs) which is absurd except that the the other thing i was remembering smith is like this is the one year ninth grade the year that was about to begin i won the mvp award that year on my jv baseball team oh wow and so that represents the absolute high point of my delusional belief so we're watching the team that um, this, the 96 team and the 1997 team, one of the reasons I hold them so close is because they also coincide with the best I ever was at playing baseball. The best That's the team cool. ever was during my childhood is, all, is also the years that I was th- the closest I ever got to the version of the baseball player I thought I could be. Well, you know, I laughed at the idea, but like, how else does one become a professional athlete except for emulating success. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't know. And I mean, 
I, I don't know. That's not a rhetorical question. <laughs> I think what you're making me think about is I would always, in the summers, like I, I'm in thinking back on this time, what I would have been getting ready to do in addition to go back to school for the fall is play fall baseball, which was a league that would happen every fall where for basically two months before it really got too cold, um, there was this like kind of alternate little league that you could play in where it was, it was basically like a fall exhibition season and you would get to be on teams with different people than you were normally on because less kids signed up. So they would kind of make these super teams from all the local little leagues. Um, and I would always play. So I was so much better in fall ball than I was in the, in the summer because in, in the summer I was like in good student mode and I would always try to do like mm. exactly what the coaches told me to do and I could never hit and I could never pitch when I was like following instructions but in fall ball I didn't have my regular coaches so I would just do my imitation thing where I'd be like all right I'm gonna pitch this game like I'm Alan Mills I'm, just, I'm gonna pitch just like <laughs> I'm doing Alan Mills's windup and I'm gonna throw the pitches he throws and I would always do so much better and I was like an actual good hitter in fall ball because I was like I'm just gonna swing like Palmero swings and I didn't think about it beyond that wow and the the results were is that dramatic. bad coaching? <laughs> I don't think it's bad coaching so much as me having no self confidence. <laughs> sure. Well, that's bad coaching. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do we want to watch another half inning here? Let's watch another half inning. But I wonder if I could, Smith, um, quiz you. Uh, do you think you could name? Uh, any television shows of note that premiered in 1996? Because there's one in particular that uh, I wonder if you were paying attention to at the time. Well, you have to remember, again, no TV house. Oh, that's right. You didn't have any TV. But, but I'm pretty sure... No, let's see. Friends is 94. Yep. So it's just completed its, like, breakout season. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rest in peace, um, Matthew Perry, by the way. We haven't recorded since peace, that was Matthew announced. Perry. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What, what's the... Uh... So one that uh, is just interesting to me uh, was air, was premiering at this time was Everybody Loves Raymond. Uh, that show is not terribly oh. important to me, but I just think it's interesting that uh, this thing that is now... Yeah, had a good run. ...so canonical was just starting in 1996. But the other thing that aired its first episode in 1996 is The Daily Show. Oh, wow. Yeah. See, that is like a seminal part of me understanding and discovering television. Yeah, that's, that's, why, I, that's why I thought you might be interested. This is yeah. pre-John Stewart, of that's course. That's fascinating. And when does he join? I believe he joined, I want to say, in 99... Let's see. When did huh. John Stewart start? Oh man, the, the aforementioned show. Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, Dexter's Laboratory, also Third Rock from the Sun, Arliss for the Real Heads, Arliss, which of course <laughs> um, did an entire episode about the Cal Ripken Jr. rumor 
with regard to Kevin Costner. There's a whole episode of, of our list about it, uh, or based on All it, right. I should say. But um, I just checked, and my suspicions were correct. It was January of 1999 when Stewart took over. Okay. Okay. And it's he 2001 is... 2001 when I go off to college and suddenly get access to... Uh, the the world of of right. <laughs> watching back old episodes of everything and also like the Daily Show being a link to sanity in the Bush years. <laughs> yeah, well, I I do think there is something um, that we have in common at this time, Smith, which is that even though I did have a TV, um, <clears throat> my version of isolation and separation from mainstream pop culture is that baseball was all that I watched. It was the only thing. Mm. So I, I never saw an episode of The Simpsons. I never saw an episode of The X-Files. I never saw an episode of Seinfeld, like South Park, all these things that everybody else at school was watching. I had no idea what they were. But I was like, would you like to know Rocky Coppinger's uniform number? Because I do know that <laughs> information. <laughs> <laughs> so that was sort of self-enforced. Y- yeah, except it, I don't know if it was enforced as much as like it, it didn't even occur to me to watch anything else. Right. I was like, this is the only thing I like, want to do. It wasn't like your parents were like, you can only watch baseball. No, 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 no. I mean, th- that's an interesting question. I wonder what they would have said if I was like, everybody else is watching South Park. I want to watch South Park. I don't even know if they knew what South Park was. We had a um, six VHS collection of um, recorded off of Comedy Central by my uncle, of the Monty Python's Pythonathon, New Year's Day, <laughs> um, every single flying circus. Uh-huh. And it would just like cut off halfway through an episode and it had yeah. all the ads in it. And that's like my only mm-hmm. TV. And <laughs> well, Flying Circus is like at that point 30 years old. Well, you know what's interesting about this, Smith, is like, and I promise, folks, we will get back to the game in just a second and not just do Sam and Alan Nostalgia Hour, but. I do That's think the point of this. Let's be real. That is the point of this. Um, it's interesting to think about, this was a time when there were so, so many fewer options of things to watch. Like the idea of watching things, one, it was just hard to, a TV was the only way you could do that. You could only watch what was on unless you had taken this step like your uncle did of taping something, which was non-trivial <laughs> to do. Non-trivial. It was very hard. And even within this environment where there was less to watch, you and I were not watching very much, which I think is probably says a lot about the the people we grew up to be. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, All right. Should we get back into it? Speaking of Rocky Coppinger, he's coming back out for the top of the second inning as we see a shot of the Sheraton Inner Harbor still there. I parked there uh-huh. when I went to um, game two of the ALDS, which we're not going to talk about. <laughs> because this is why we're in sad. the time machine, to protect us from the present. Yes. As Matt Stairs stands in, I, I just have to say something. I knew that was Matt Stairs before they even put up the Chiron. <laughs> Bless your heart. And you know why I know? Because... I have never forgotten that sweet, curly, blonde mullet <laughs> that he And stash sported. combo. Yeah. Man, 
I do have to say, the other thing watching Coppinger pitch is um, he's a big boy. Mm. And I don't just got mean got muscular. On him. Yeah, he's really, um, he's a paunchy man. And this was kind of the height of the era where even though like, you know, we were getting it like, or, or in the thick, I suppose, of the steroid era. There was a thing back at this time that you don't see as much anymore where it was like a joke that baseball players aren't really that athletic. I feel like this, like the mid-late 90s are kind of the last gasp of that, where like somebody who looked like Rocky Coppinger could be a professional athlete. <laughs> yeah. Because there, there's not much and, muscle and there. I mean, it, it... And he walks Matt Stairs. <laughs> Wow. Steinbach had 30 home runs. Let me just look up these uh, 96 athletics. <laughs> this is an inflated era. Stats here. Let's see. Terry Steinbach. So this is the 1996 Oakland team. My goodness. Mega season from Steinbach at age 34. Good Lord. Yeah. He would finish the season Almost with... Almost certainly also juicing. 35 home runs, 100 driven in, on-base percentage of 342. And, yeah, I would say he's got one of those textbook uh, juicer career arcs here. Prior to 1996, he had played 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 seasons and never hit more than 16 home runs. And then, you know, all of a sudden, Smith, I, he must have just really found his stroke <laughs> because he smacked 35 of them this year. At the classic age where that happens, 34. Yeah, 34 is always, is always when players really come into their own. That's the, those are the prime years. I think we can agree. Yeah, yeah. What's crazy, though, Smith? That is an interesting thing about watching 1996 baseball is, like, I had no idea at the moment what any of those numbers meant. Yeah. But it felt like people had, like, broken, like, they'd figured out the game. Yeah. And yeah. it was like, wow, well, you know, what, what a um, remarkable human achievement mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and we also i think can't discount maybe i'm going a little too far with this but 94 i think is when ken griffey jr's major league baseball comes out and it was one mm. of the first games where you could simulate entire baseball seasons and i don't know if this was true of other people but because i could do that in this video game, I all of a sudden started paying attention to stat lines much more closely because I wanted stat lines in my game to look like real major league stat lines, hmm. to feel like I was doing something that had some relationship with real baseball. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's also, an, I mean, this is sort of totally pre-fantasy. I mean, some people are still doing fantasy baseball with their, like, 
486 max, calculating it out of the box scores and sending it around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By email. Yeah. But or fax. Not even by email. <laughs> by letter. Yeah. But like our collective obsession with statistics and what those statistics were showing is yet to happen. I mean, this is definitively pre Moneyball. Yeah. This is pre Sabermetrics. I think at least as a mainstream, I don't know technically when we trace the origin of Sabermetrics to, but notably when they're showing the Chirons for the players in the batter's box, it's just batting average home runs and RBIs. Because this was the time when no those were the only three Mel numbers that mattered. has not mentioned exit velocity once. <laughs> no spin rate updates on uh, Rocky <laughs> Coppinger. I don't know what that's about. Yeah, that's interesting. There's much less data happening in this feed. Yeah, the screen is like clear of... Gra- there's like, I have no idea how hard Rocky Coppinger is throwing. Yeah, there's very few graphics on the screen. Actually... Between pitches, there are no graphics on the screen. Um, and yeah, as we, every so often they are minus the score. Yeah. And as we look at the batter's box from the center field camera, there's no ads behind home plate. It's just that, that hmm. dark green, that forest green uh, padding. But that's it. Yeah. Another thing that's interesting to be reminded of, Smith, is... Um, when they've showed shots of the dugouts, the home and away dugouts, there's no protection at the top of the dugout steps. Oh, right. It's just wide open. So, like, you know, somebody could lash a ball over there and uh, hit somebody Was in the face. Was there a participating event, precipitating event that someone got hit? There must be. There must be. I mean, I know that's eventually. Like a, a Hindenburg moment? There must be, and I, I don't know what it is. Here's I mean, another I know thing. That, like, a couple of fans got hit, and they sort of continue to boost up the stuff behind the plate. Yeah. But I also keep having the experience as every one of these guys comes into the box of thinking, like, man, were people's torsos just smaller then? And what I'm realizing <laughs> is that it, this is back. This is again still when people were wearing baseball pants. Like, uh, I'm gonna go old man yells at cloud mode here but this is back when like people wore baseball pants like they were supposed to which is like up at your waist <laughs> tight cinch on the belt and it makes it look like nobody has a torso <laughs> yeah man not much command from coppinger i am being reminded of how frustrating it was to watch him pitch i mean it, it is also really interesting to see the state of the speed of play yeah um it is noticeable how much slower this is would you believe alan and this is and this is way before the slowdown way before matt stares with the stolen place that's embarrassing i love you chris hoyles but that's embarrassing um alan smith i have a i i have a surprising piece of information for you where okay. do you think Rocky Coppinger finished? We are watching Rocky, Rocky Coppinger at age 22. This was his rookie season. Where do you think he finished in the Rookie of the Year voting in 1996? Fifth. Excellent guess. It was fourth, which is oh. at least yeah, I remember 10 him slots being higher like, than I would have thought. <laughs> no, I know. He was a hope. Yeah. 
he was a guy who like he was we he, he was um on his way up at this point he would finish the season 10 and 6 with a 5.18 earned run average and oh boy 25 home runs allowed in 125 innings pitched that is not great that's not great and not interesting great. i guess Another phenomenon that I think we take for granted now is the rookie coming up and being impactful. Um, yeah. And I don't think that that happened as much in this era. Yeah, I think that's true. So, like, he might have been the fifth best rookie, and that wasn't very good. Yeah. Well, and there was much more of a sense, I feel like. I feel like the... the um, good Lord, Smith... What would you, how many years? I'm just going to ask. How many years do you think Matt Stairs played professionally in the big leagues? Hmm. The answer may surprise you. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to confess that I don't remember who Matt Stairs was before this game. So <laughs> he didn't clearly register all that much on my consciousness. Matt um, Stairs. How about eight? Try 19. Shut the front door. 19 seasons, 265 home runs, career on base percentage of 356, and we just watched Smith one he of stole his base. 30 career stolen bases. 30 over 20-some seasons? So this is, you know, we just watched a little piece of history. A collector's item. Yeah. Ooh, nice oh, close-up nice of Reebok cleats. The Reebok cleats. I don't even know if they make those anymore. I think Reebok got out of the cleats game, huh? I think they got out of the shoes game. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you can still get some old trainers. This was also the era. I was just reminded uh, in that shot of Rocky Coppinger's cleats. Oh, <laughs> Classic Bonilla. Bobby Bonilla finds his way to a fly ball. Folks, uh, for those who aren't um, live streaming the game along with us, which, what are you thinking? Um, Bobby Bonilla just ran haltingly we will towards... Have a, we will have a, um, a link in the uh, show notes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so but you could do that if you wanted. Bonilla just ran haltingly towards a fly ball and jagged his head to the right at the last minute because he was afraid the ball was going to hit him and still somehow managed <laughs> to catch it. <laughs> Because it didn't look confident. He was so infuriating. He was so infuriating. Yeah. It is easy to forget how infuriating of an experience Bobby Bonilla was. Because, I mean, especially in like our current age where, I don't know, Santander is maybe not a nailed on amazing right fielder, but he comes up with the goods and he doesn't look like. He can't figure out how to run. Yeah. Well, Bonilla, I mean, Bonilla was part of that feeling that this was the team that was, like, pushing all in. Because um, if you right. remember, Smith, we traded for him partway through the 95 uh, season. There's the man. Is this Cal? Ah, uh, there yeah. he is. There he is. Oh, this is when he was doing the low hand stance. Cal Ripken, of course, infamously changed his batting stance almost every game. That's an exaggeration, but... 
I do remember this when he was sort of like carrying the hands very low, doing almost nothing in the box. Cal nope. Ripken beating out the infield single. Well, it was an error by Giambi. No, no, that was the blazing, it. the blazing speed of Cal Ripken I choose to uh, <laughs> attribute that to. <laughs> Interesting hack. This, it, it must be said, Smith, another thing that is, is always interesting to note about this period of Orioles baseball is uh, 95, of course, is when Ripken breaks Gehrig's record, and he is still playing at this point every single game, just extending the yeah. streak. Man, Giambi's pants are tight. <laughs> BJ Serhoff in the box. Oh, man. Can we note the striking resemblance of Jordan Westberg to BJ Serhoff? Huh. Sort of a Jordan Westberg Scott Magnus crossover. Ooh, I like it. I like it. Scotty, if you're listening, high praise for BJ Serhoff. <laughs> <laughs> did always love the way Serhoff would just kind of like doink the barrel of the bat on his shoulder while he was waiting. And he just serves it into left field. Orioles with a little rally here in the uh, bottom of the second. Man, the ability of the players at this time to like just go with pitches where they were thrown instead of trying to yank everything yeah. out of the park. That is absolutely like, and again, choking up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Serhoff, Palmero, they're just like going with what the pitcher is giving them. Yeah. Which, you know, I have to say the, uh, oh, and now Eddie Murray comes in. Oh, my God. I forgot that this was, this was when we brought Eddie Murray back. Do you see those Eddie signs everybody's holding up, Smith? Love it. I have one of those on the wall of my childhood bedroom. Whoa. So this is like um, not quite, but almost washed up, Eddie. He God, was. Look at that stance. Yeah, he is bent over. That's that's Alomar style, or Alomar probably yeah. more Eddie Murray style. This is Eddie Murray's penultimate season. Yeah, he would play one more year after this, um, and this was actually he came back to Baltimore this year. Uh, we acquired him mid-season from Cleveland um, just in time for, if memory serves, him to hit his 500th career home run in an Orioles mm. uniform. So he has not been back for very long, probably why they're still producing those signs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the trade deadline would have been July 31st, so this is about a month, a month later. He would end up hitting 10 home runs for us in 96. Um, and that, I'm not sure if it's happened at this stage, but um, that 500th home run I don't think has happened yet because he would only hit 504 in his career, and he only hit three the next season in 97 before he retired. So, Wait, is this the game where the 500th home run happens? Oh, my God. Maybe that's why it's on YouTube. Let's see. 
Oh no, it happened on uh, not this at bat. <laughs> it happened on September sixth. So we're still we're still a week before number five hundred for Eddie. <laughs> you know, um, something I would be very interested for us to get into at some point, Smith. It would be a very Baltimoreans uh, thing to cover is why Eddie Murray was not more embraced as the face of the franchise than Cal Ripken Jr., uh, which is not to take anything away from Cal Ripken Jr., but um, during the reporting process on the rumor, I did talk to a number of folks who were like, well, racism. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but, you know, Baltimore, majority black city, like, it's a shame that... Um, Eddie never really got his due. Yeah. I mean, I think he is, I guess, historically appreciated. Yeah, but it it wasn't quite the same thing. You know, the adulation was not at the same level. Definitely not. But if you, gun to my head right now, asked me, who is the better baseball player, Eddie Murray or Cal Ripken Jr.? I would say Eddie in a heartbeat. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? That's interesting. Absolutely. I think you're. I think you're. You're right. I mean. I mean, Cal Ripken. I. I love the man. He uh, is most famous for doing a thing for a very long time, not necessarily a thing exceptionally well. Yeah, I mean, I think he... Cal Ripken had a few really elite offensive seasons at shortstop at a time yeah. when that was not common. Um, it wasn't a thing shortstops did. That's true. Yeah, it was like, you know, uh, Cal Ripken walked so Corey Seager could win two World Series MVP awards. <laughs> um, and I do think it's also true that, like, especially... Henderson was sitting right there, and you went with Corey Seager. Jesus Christ, Sam. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, something that's interesting is if we were to think about... Um, and I'll pause it again here as we come to the end of the inning. Um, if we think about... You know, we were talking about the difference in the way we look at statistics now versus how we did then. Eddie Murray was much more of a, from a modern statistical standpoint, much more of an impact bat than Ripken was. Right. Hit for solid average, walked a ton, consistently hit for a lot of power. Um, He's more the kind of guy that now people would would be angling to keep on their team than, than a Ripken, who I... I mean, it's weird to say this, but, like, a player like Ripken maybe has a hard time sticking on a roster in 2023. Is that true? I think that might be true. I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that certainly sabermetrics were kinder to Eddie than Cal. Um, I think that he... He had a lot of, like, he may be a utility man rather than an everyday starter, ironically. 
and he may have to sort of like find his way around the the diamond a little bit more. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm I'm just looking at, at Ripken's career stats, and he, he just had a lot of years around this time where he hit between 250 and 260, got on base 32, 33% of the time, and hit 20 home runs, which is not bad by any stretch. No, actually, and maybe part of my feeling about Cal Ripken as an offensive baseball player is that he didn't juice, and so his numbers didn't then spike. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, the, the, there, was a, there was consistency in the, in the numbers as much as there was in the playing on the field every day. Um, yeah. But, I mean, if you look at Eddie in his prime, you know, first with the Orioles and then a bunch of years with the Dodgers and the Mets, um, he was hitting close to 300 every year, sometimes well above on-base percentages in the, you know, 350s to 400s. And... 26 to like 33 home runs for like 15 straight seasons. Um, I mean, he was by any stretch an elite offensive performer. So Sam, do you know this game is taking place on the 26th of August? Do you know the fairly seismic piece of legislation that um, had been passed four days previously? I do not. Tell me. So uh, we are watching baseball in the post-welfare reform era. Okay. Oh, my Um, God. So this is, in some ways, the week of Bill Clinton's most Bill Clinton-y piece of legislation. Whoa. Um, Like, it is the end of... Of it's a Democrat in the White House, but basically doing his best Ronald Reagan impression. Um, <laughs> big big government is not doesn't have a place in our life. We need to cut down on and make more efficient our welfare state, and trim back the excesses of a um, a, a, a welfare system that in Bill Clinton's mind and in many sort of um, center-left people's minds of the time had become too large and uh, supporting the wrong parts of of, of the world. I think that's a really interesting... I'm not sure that me in 1996 was like clued into that. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I wasn't actually. Sure. But if I look back on this moment historically... um, the Welfare Reform Act is kind of like peak Clinton. Yeah. Um, and it's peak sort of like everything that happened in the 90s. Yeah. The era of big government is over, right? Like that's a that's a Democrat saying that and legislating that way. And it's interesting to think about sort of the legacies that we are still dealing with in terms of what that – did to hollow out government's ability to be efficacious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like well, if the if the left has given up on the welfare state, I mean, and, and welfare reform is not given up on the welfare state. I don't, but it was like giving ground in a very serious way about what government's role and responsibility to people was. Yeah, and we also, I mean, contextually, I think it's important to say that probably somewhere in Clinton's thinking is that. 
you know, as we are sitting looking at this game that happened in late August of 1996, it was a month and a half before the election, uh, which Clinton right. would go on to win, notably with less than 50% of the popular vote because of, ding, 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 Mr. Ross Perot. Yeah. Who took 8.4% of the of the vote. Am I right in saying um heralding an era where every president since has struggled to get above the majority? I think I guess Obama 1.0 won with a fairly sizable majority of the vote, not just a plurality of the vote. I think it's just the Republicans who have won without <laughs> <laughs> Because Biden, you know, I mean, it's, it's easy to forget because of all the um, idiocy, but Biden actually won pretty decisively. Uh, In total, total number of votes cast. Total number of votes um, and, and percentage-wise. I mean, I think he won, you know, 52, 51, 52% of the vote. Um, but Clinton, you know, minus Perot... Ross Perot maybe it's, doesn't get that second term. It's unclear whether he gets a second term. And of course, Perot also played a role in the 92 election, which, and this is like, it's always really crazy to look back on this. In 92, Clinton wins with 43% of the vote, Smith, because wow. Perot took 19%, 19% from a third party candidate. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Alan Smith, what movie do you think was number one at the box office in 1996 at the time we uh, were watching this game? Incorrect. Incorrect. Uh, We are still, I think, one year pre-Titanic, which means the king of the box Mm. office was not Leonardo DiCaprio, but your hero and mine... Time Magazine's Sexiest Man of the Year, never, tragically, (laughs) Mr. Bill Pullman, President Pullman, speaking of presidents, in Independence Day. Independence Day would make $281 million, Alan, at the box office. Wow. $281 million. Amazing. Same year, uh, by the way, uh, as the first Mission Impossible movie. So kind of in the Daily Show sort of the the Mission Impossible I mean, I think that welfare reform is maybe like the seminal (laughs) piece of uh, legislation of the Clinton era, or at least the like um, most evocative (laughs) of of how Clinton governed. where do you think Independence Day sits in like our modern film filmography? Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, it, it is of a piece with, there were a lot of movies around that time where the central plot point was like, Oh no, the president's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, like Deep Impact, I think, has that as a storyline. Independence Day, obviously. Um, what's the Harrison for? Air Force One. Um, yeah. The American President. 
Um, there, there were, there was just back a when, kind of a back me- when that was like the person who everybody for sure was rooting for to come out of this. Yeah, like this was a time when there was just a hageography around the president. Uh, this yeah. is peak West Wing. You know what I mean? Like, um, and we're leading up to the time when that hagiography continued but switched sides right like we're we're driving hard at the george w bush era Hmm. uh, when we notably stopped making movies about how great and heroic the president is pretty interesting honestly when you think about it you're right that is actually a a really interesting high watermark that independence that represents but also yeah in that in that moment in our understanding of american culture that's fascinating yeah. Um, Will Smith. Uh, I think this, this trip down memory lane has, has left me with, with a number of questions about <laughs> our great nation and about the legacy of our beloved Baltimore Orioles. Uh, I, I, think. Know that, I know that the state... This pace of play was slower, but for us to only get through two innings of Time Machine baseball in an hour, that's really something. <laughs> Strong work. Strong work from, from the Baltimoreans here on this first edition. And by the way, before I, before I ask you the question that this has really brought up for me, um, yeah. let us know what you think of Time Machine baseball. We would love to hear from you. Uh, holler at us. And tell us if, if you're Should we pick a different this. game? Should we continue watching this game to see how it turns out? Sam and I have not watched ahead yet. We don't know the ending of this game. Maybe you do. Yeah, if there's anybody out there that has an encyclopedic memory, <laughs> or if there's a game in particular that looms large in your memory you'd really like to hear us do, please let us know. Um, but of course, the, the question that, that really sticks in my mind, Smith, uh, when I think about everything we've looked at today is what would you call former Orioles prospect Henry Yerudia if Smith, if and only if he (laughs) (laughs) hold on, hold on. I had it and I lost it. Oh God, where did it go? Yes, 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 is yes. Is Henry yes. Urudia's cup of coffee with the Orioles closer to present day or this game? <laughs> <laughs> Did it even ever happen, honestly? Um, what would you call Henry Urudia if he was, um, in fact, a utility player who uh, had a very productive one, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight-year run with the Orioles, during which he hit a tidy two ninety-one and got on base at a three forty-one clip. What would you call him, Smith? He did not come up in the last two innings, so I oh, don't yes, he know. did. You would call oh, him B.J. Sarudiahoff. Oh, Sarudiahoff, of course. That's what you would do. Well, folks, um, this has been Time Machine Baseball. We're going to hop out of the time machine now, but uh, thanks for riding along with us. Baltimoreans. Baltimoreans.